0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by
2: advertising outside the UK.
3: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.
2: Hello, I'm Emma Barnett and welcome to Woman's Hour from BBC Radio 4. Good morning and welcome to the programme. It is Monday morning, so I'm happy to be able to tell you we have the Irish actor and comedian Aisling B on the programme today. She once said she rebuilt her bathroom around her BAFTA. So the night after the film BAFTAs, she's a pretty good person to have on for some grounding perspectives, perhaps also some home renovation tips. I should also say at this point, with the actor Samantha Morton's acceptance speech for her BAFTA fellowship last night going viral... Lots of people clicking on that right now. I was just looking at it before I came on air. She dedicated that fellowship to children in care based on her childhood experience. Samantha Morton, I'm happy to be able to say, is coming on the programme tomorrow. So a lot of BAFTA award winners gracing the Woman's Hour microphone in the next 24 hours. I'm sure we'll get some wisdom and uh, some humour as well from Ashling B, who's with me today. But I'll also have a primer on stoicism for you on today's programme. From Marcus Aurelius to the present day, you will hear why one of my guests has given up on wellness, having really gone for it on that level, and become a stoic. But she will be challenged by an expert who's not so convinced and would like you to have more Aristotle in your life. I can't say that every day. But my question for you today revolves around the life and times of another guest on the programme who at 27 is set to become the youngest peer in the House of Lords, Carmen Smith for the Welsh Nationalist Party Plaid Cymru. Her appointment has provoked quite a reaction for a number of reasons but top of the list of concerns seem to be uh, issues around her inexperience and youth. This happened you'll remember not long ago when another former political adviser last year went into the upper chamber on Boris Johnson's list at the age of 30. My question is, what were you seen as too young to do? What do you make of such criticism? Uh, Do you have those concerns? Do you think they're valid, actually, about when it comes to uh, specifically our lives and responsibility for our lives and politics and how to hold a mirror up to uh, the government in this case? um, And and providing, as she would like to do, I'm sure she'll make this case, uh, a better experience for the people of Wales. What is your view and what are some of your experiences when you were judged too young to do something? You can text me here, 84844, looking forward to this. Email me via the Woman's Hour website or you can get in touch on WhatsApp or leave a voice note on 03700 Those numbers you need for anything you hear on the programme and you wish to contribute. But first, over the weekend, there have been many tributes to the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, after his death in an Arctic prison on Friday. Yesterday, his widow, Yulia Navalnyer, posted a touching picture on Instagram of her with her husband watching a performance, him gently kissing her head. Her words, the caption below, simply saying, I love you. On Friday, before his death was confirmed, Yulia spoke to the Munich Security Conference in Germany.
3: And you all heard about the horrific news. I thought about it quite a while. I thought, should I stand here before you or should I go back to my children? And then I thought, what would have Alexei done in my place? And I'm sure that he would have been standing here.
2: Translate, a translation there uh, of Yulia speaking and she is due to speak today to European foreign ministers in Brussels, uh, previously viewed as someone remaining in the shadows, supporting not speaking with the death of her husband, regarded as the last of the opposition to the Kremlin. Could she now become the face of opposition in Russian politics. I'm joined now by The Spectator's Russia correspondent Owen Matthews, who was Bureau Chief for Newsweek in Moscow for more than a decade. And shortly we'll hear from Sarah Rainsford, who's now uh, the BBC Eastern European correspondent based in Warsaw, but was in Russia and reported from there for more than 20 years until she was expelled in 2021. Uh, Owen, that question then, I know you've been looking into it, uh, the, the thought of Yulia becoming opposition. What do you make of that?
4: Well, if her principle is to do what Alexei Navalny would have done, then she'll do it. Um, She definitely has the authority, the moral authority. Um, The question is, uh, who is she going to lead? That's the real tragedy of the Russian opposition is so many of them have fled the country. In fact, up to a million Russians, exactly those people who would have supported Navalny. The intelligent, the smart, the well-educated, young, professional classes, they've just uh, left en masse. And I think that's part of the reason, along with police repression, that there have been essentially no mass protests against his death. There have been some tragic scenes of his supporters leaving flowers, being arrested, that kind of thing. But Russia has not risen to protest that brutality, that uh, that appalling murder, direct or indirect, of Navalny. Uh, so Yulia can indeed lead the Russian opposition, but the Russian opposition is basically outside Russia now.
2: And that's, going to, I mean, and she is as well. And that's a, a complicated situation to, to try and have that together.
4: The real tragedy uh, is that it could have been Alexei Navalny himself. I knew him. I respected him tremendously. Uh, but I think he was, uh, he was a fool to return. I think it was a tragic, appalling miscalculation. Um, I think uh, I mean, when I see those images today of there's a woman called Svetlana Tychanovska, the head of the Belarusian opposition, she fled. Um, she was, in fact, was expelled from Belarus in August of 2020, more or less the same moment that Alexei Navalny was left in a medevac Airplane having been poisoned, um, and today she met with anthony blinken the secretary of the, the the secretary of state of uh, of the united states she 's been addressing the European Parliament she is leading the opposition from abroad uh, that could have been uker if he 'd not chosen disastrously to return um, but I think that there 's every chance um, that Julian Navalny could take this uh, take up the reins to, could take up the leadership of uh, Navalny's movement. And uh, knowing her slightly, personally, I've been, you know, um, she's a very uh, guarded person. Uh, she's been, uh, she's a little spiky, I think. Um, she's always been extremely intensely protective of her husband, and um, fanatically loyal to him. Um, so I think there's some questions about whether she has the charisma, or the uh, um, the sort of practical intelligence. But there's no doubt that she has the moral authority.
2: What does that mean, practical intelligence? You mean...
4: Because in order to um, actually be the leader of the Russian opposition, you need to be agile, you need to appeal to many different constituencies. And actually, that was Alexei Navalny's genius, is that actually his personal charm, his charisma, and frankly, um, uh, one mustn't speak ill of the dead, but um, his you know, frank flirtation with Russian nationalism was what allowed him to appeal to people who were not just those uh, liberal intelligentsia, but actually ordinary working class Russian people.
2: You mentioned that you, you had met him and you'd met her and, and you know a bit. What, what can you tell us about Yulia and how you started to there, how she is and how they were as a couple?
4: They were an incredibly close, loving couple. Um, and actually her role um, w- Always was from a public from the public's point of view to stand by her man, and she said, and she gave very few interviews, she de- deliberately kind of avoided the light light limelight for herself, and her position until her husband's poisoning and then later arrest was that her job was to make a home life and make a semblance of normality, even under FSB surveillance, even after sort of harassment. Her, her husband was regularly arrested and thrown in jail for 10, 15 days at a time. And her role was as a homemaker and to keep the family together. That was what she would tell interviewers. That's my job.
2: Yeah, she said uh, in a a Russian edition of Harper's Bazaar, my main task is to make sure that in spite of everything, nothing in our family changes. Right.
4: So um, that changed when her husband was arrested. And, well, first it changed when he was poisoned, because actually that was when she stepped into the limelight. She actually flew straight to Omsk, where he was in the hospital, Doctors tried to prevent her from seeing him. She was giving regular press conferences on the steps to the assembled world and the world's media that were assembled there. She, you know, through her force of character, made sure that she could uh, see him. He was in a coma at the time. She basically shamed the Russian authorities into allowing him to leave to be medevaced out and thereby saved his life. And then, for the moment of his arrest, uh, she also actually, we know, had to step into a public role. Um, uh, And she was, uh, you know, the only member of that family, and along with some of his political aides who escaped. Plenty of them are still in jail, by the way, like people like Ilya Yashin, we shouldn't forget. There's still lots of people close to Navalny who are still suffering in that prison system, Vladimir Karamurza, and so on. But she has uh, she has the opportunity because she has the freedom um, to continue to voice those uh, extremely brave and principled, um, you know, that, the, uh, be the brave and principled voice of the Russian opposition abroad.
2: So if you were to, to, to look at it all now with, with what we know, do you think she will take that step up? And, and we should also say they have you talked about family. They have um, two sons and um and she she looks like she has that platform she 's taking a platform today in Europe. What do you think will will happen
4: uh, i don 't know um what her personal choice is going to be. Um, I think it 's possible that she 's suffered enough that she 's been completely broken by this experience. Um, no one could humanly blame her if that was the case, but I think actually the the her admiration and devotion to her late husband 's cause is so strong that I think that would be for her it's possible that would be she would see that as you know the, the highest expression of her love and the best way that she can you know, memorialize and commemorate her husband's memory is to continue his fight
2: and and her safety doing that
4: if she's abroad then she's fine um if she tries to do it in Russia as Alexei Navalny disastrously tried to do back in January of 2021 when he Decided to sort of go head to head with Putin by returning after his poisoning and was immediately arrested. Um, I don't think that that's even remotely possible to be a public opposition figure in Russia anymore. Impossible.
2: Sarah Rainford's on the, Rainsford's on the line, uh, now the BBC's Eastern European correspondent, Eastern Europe correspondent rather, I should say, based in Warsaw, but as I mentioned, was in Russia reporting for more than 20 years. And um, the, the latest that we've been hearing is also another woman in Alexei Navalny's, um, Alexei Navalny's life, it's his mother, um, as his life was, and his team and the team around her being able to see his body. What, what is the latest that we know?
5: Well, to, to be quite honest, not that much because Alexei Navalny's mother isn't being allowed uh, access to the body of her son. Um, she's spent the last few days uh, being passed from pillar to post uh, up in the Arctic uh, trying to find him. And even now when she's arrived at the mortuary where she believes his body is being held, Uh, she wasn't allowed in. uh, And the investigative investigative committee, which is a very powerful body in Russia, has apparently told uh, Navalny's uh, family that uh, the investigation is continuing, uh, that it has been extended for an unknown uh, period of time. We don't know how long that's going to go on for. We have no idea when uh, the results might be uh, complete and, and available and who they'll be available to. And obviously that's giving cause for a lot of concern, a lot of suspicion and a lot of accusations from Navalny's close team. They're accusing the authorities of of deliberately delaying uh, handing over the body and delaying the autopsy because they believe they're trying to cover up something about how Alexei Navalny died. So frankly, all we have at the moment is that very initial uh, statement a very terse statement from the prison services uh, and they said he went out for a walk he dropped uh, to the ground he collapsed and he died and that is pretty much all we know for sure coming
2: back to julia and the fact she's speaking uh, to or she's due to speak to european foreign ministers uh, in brussels today um you also have had Experience of of meeting with the Navalny's and and having a view perhaps on uh, the role his wife uh, has played will play some refer to her as Russia's real first lady. What is your take on that?
5: I think she would be a very reluctant first lady. I don't think that's ever a role that she envisaged for herself. Of course, as Owen was just saying, you know he, she's always been a, a, a massively firm pillar of support for her husband. uh, She was very often at at protests and demonstrations, walking alongside him holding his hand. Uh, She was behind him very much politically and very much committed to the same cause, but she wasn't ever um, a a woman to step forward into the the spotlight unless she had to, and she did have to on multiple occasions, and she did do that, and she does have a, a very strong moral authority of course, but she doesn't really have the same pull uh, politically at all as Alexei Navalny. And I, and I suspect she wouldn't want to fulfill that duty. But I do think that, you know, there is a role, sadly, which, which more and more women uh, are being um, placed, forced into, let's say, which is this role of being an advocate in the international community. So, for example, Vladimir Karamazov, who is another political opponent of Vladimir Putin, who has been locked up, Uh, for a very long time in Russia because he spoke out against the war in Ukraine. His wife, Yevgenia, has become a very, very vocal and very powerful advocate, uh, talking to world leaders, to politicians, uh, and pushing very hard for tough sanctions against Russia, uh, talking against the war in Ukraine, talking out against the Kremlin and against Putin, and talking for her husband Vladimir And so she's become that moral authority. And I suspect that Yulia Navalna might step into a similar role, uh, which is an international role, pushing for firmer sanctions, pushing for tougher action, uh, trying to, to sort of fill the gap in sanctions. And there are huge gaps to fill, for example. So I think, you know, that's a little bit of what we might be seeing today. And, of course, all of that happening as she's still clearly uh, just beginning uh, the, the awful process of grieving mm. for a husband she just found out has died.
2: Yes, which is important to say. But I, I think also drawing out, as you, you've done there, Sarah, the role that women are um, being wittingly or unwittingly pulled into it is something to, to pay attention to and take notice of. And as Owen was saying, you know, where that opposition actually is and, and how they can be outside of Russia um, most of the time, it seems, it is important to note as well. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah Rainsford, there, Owen Matthews, um, who is the Spectator's Russia correspondent. Thank you for that. Um, and a message actually came in saying, Uh, Don't put pressure or there shouldn't be pressure to to put on Yulia to become the opposition, especially when it's just been highlighted how dangerous it is. She has children, reads one message, just listening to that and uh, others along those lines. But others, I'm sure, um, fascinated, which we were trying to do this morning to hear a bit more about the woman uh, and what's going on. And and that presence that she has on social media and also that uh, decision today and that ability to address political leaders uh, will be something to pay attention to as that story continues to develop. Um, I have also asked you today things that you were deemed too young for, as I'll be talking a bit later on the programme to what will become the youngest to who will become rather uh, the youngest peer in the house of lords at the age of 27 i'll be talking to carmen smith shortly and there's a message here from clara says i was deemed too young to be a museum curator at the age of 27 same age by other women i still find it sad that my main critics were older women who i'd hoped might have supported me i've therefore made it my mission to support young female curators all my career. But let me tell you about who's just walked in. I did say it. it's a Monday morning. I would love to be able to say we might have a bit of comedy, a bit of joy, a bit of entertainment and I, I know she can do that. don't want to put too much pressure on but she is a comedy and acting star on both sides of the pond. She grew up in County Kildare in Ireland and in 2012 became the first woman for 20 years to win the prestigious So You Think You're Funny competition for new stand-ups. Her BAFTA winning sitcom This Way Up, and brilliant it was and is, firmly established her as a presence on our TV screens. Uh, I could go on, but her latest show, Alice and Jack, has just begun on Channel 4. Ashling, B. Good morning. Good
1: morning. What a lovely introduction there. We, we try,
2: we try. We use the words and uh, we, we
1: work with what you've done. Yeah. So well, thanks, thanks you for that. Very much. I feel like I'm, I'm too young to be on TV, to be honest. you right. are like, how could someone so young get on TV, you know? And I'm like, guys, I'm just a teen like all the others, an ambitious teen. 39? You know? it, it, between there and 16. I've just turned 39, yeah. so I've got a vest yeah interest no it's our it's our
2: year (laughs) we're we're both far too young (laughs) to be here but let's proceed um if we could just first talk about the new projects the Mm -hmm. new tv show and then there are many things to to get to i hope but you are playing lynn Mm -hmm. not alice or jack not alice or or even jack or even jack (laughs) um and you are in a situation you're in a you're in a relationship you have a baby and you learn a bit more about your your a half's ex, which yes. is a moment sometimes for people.
1: Yes, well, I, I, that's sort of been, it's been an interesting reaction because we made this show a year and a half ago and if you don't know anything about it, it stars the wonderful Donal Gleason and Andrea Riseborough, and they're just two gorgeous people and actors who've worked together for kind of the course of over a decade in each other's lives and so when they were talking about doing this together, it sort of mimicked... Them the the show is set over the course of 14 years where Alice and Jack come in and out of each other's lives so that's kind of what happened with Donal and Andrea as well and um, in that time he meets me, Lynn uh, and we sort of get into a situation where it's not exactly love but it's necessity and a baby and we find love in that time and I did love the idea when I read this script of especially at the time I didn't have a partner, I met Jack about two weeks afterwards actually. Um but uh the the idea that you're dating and you're putting your heart out there and you just hope when you meet someone that they're probably in the same place because you don't know for most of dating someone at the start if they are actually invested. You put on a performance of mm-hmm. a date in a restaurant and a cafe and the next day and nice Sundays walking around together and um and then life gets in the way. And um so, Lynn, my character's journey is sort of finding out that all was not as it seemed, and that while I thought I had all of him, I actually didn't, type of thing, but he had all of me. And I think that heartbreak is um, something probably a lot of people relate to, or from like the little messages I've been getting in. I've been quite surprised by, now I didn't write the show, it was written by Victor Levin, who um, wrote Mad Men and stuff like that. Um, but I've been quite interested by the reaction of people who were like, oh, I was the Lynn. And I kind of find that a beautiful bit of like heartbreaking bit in life that like um, you might be the B character in a TV show, but you're the main character in your own version of that. And I've always been fascinated, even when I write my own stuff, of the person on the side who doesn't become the TV show or doesn't become the lead in the movie character because theirs is a more angsty sort of um, messy soup of emotions. Well, well of also,
2: you're tackling there being the second choice. Yes. Yeah. Which, and, and, whether, and how
1: you cope with that. Yes, and whether that is just life, like whether this idea that we should be, I should have been the first princess the prince ever gave a ring to is sort of maybe some old crazy idea that we have, but life doesn't work out like that. Mm. And the relationships take work and we all, the older you get, the more baggage you come, but also the more lessons you've learned and the more information you have about yourself as well, like you have a bit more of a mission statement when you fall in love or find someone older. And um, and so, yeah, when, when, uh, when I was kind of like looking at Lynn, one thing I loved about her, which I, I don't know if it would totally be me, would be a real knowing inner steel rod in her that says, no, I'm nobody's consolation prize or second choice. I do not want that life. Whereas there's a lot of people, and this is also a fine choice where you're like I know I'm second choice and I'm fine with that there are other areas in my family in my career where I want to be first but here it doesn't
2: have to be that Well it reminds me of Jolene I just took me Yeah yeah yeah, yeah
1: yeah Do you know what I referenced Jolene the other day actually because but with Jolene, she is happy to be second choice. Yeah,
2: please don't take my man. Yeah, and she's
1: like, please, I'm happy with second choice. Just don't let him leave me. Whereas Lynn, my character in this is like, I'm begging you, I'm walking away, don't follow me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm so happy you did that, not me. Yeah, I leaned into your version. But I would pay a lot of money to see yours, Emma. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I I feel though there's... Um It's amazing that she does that idea of not letting that define you or negate your self-worth. And I think a bit later in the programme, we're actually going to talk about stoicism and a way of living your life. Yes. And that as a philosophy Mm. and a principle. And I think, you know, how to keep going with things when we're sold, of course, an era of being happy all day, every yeah. day is the goal. And it's not human. And, and I'm, I'm all, always bolstered
1: by other people's stories. Like, you know, if you're having a fight with your partner and someone goes, oh, yeah, my fella does that or my wife does that all the time or my partner does that. And it's actually, especially if they're relationships you really believe in from the outside, you're like, oh, my God, that is so nice to hear. And you're not going around looking for terrible stories. It's just so nice to know that behind doors things aren't, lovely all the time and things take work and they're hard and they're smelly at times and life is odd. How smelly is yours? I feel uh, like Very, that. very unsmelly but like the <laughs> idea of life isn't gorgeous and it's, it's sometimes it's toilets and meals and dishes. Actually most of the time it is. And then the other bits are, are glorious that you'd kind of turn up for. The sort of montage is, is what you stay for. But the, the main bits of the movie are the, the, the graft of it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been a real trend in television even towards shows that show that because you're like, Oh, thank God. I can breathe out. I am actually normal rather than this, this sort of like. And then the next thing you know, we were just perfect together and I'd met my other half. I'm like no I don't have another half I'm all the bits the messy bits all fit in my jigsaw um, so they have to be someone who sort of sits beside your own jigsaw I think
2: Well it's, it's what goes on around the kitchen table isn't it? At yes least.
1: and I think that's why people love there's a lot of um, I think snobbery around reality TV and I understand the madness of how fake it actually reality can be but also our own realities can be quite fake in terms of what we present on Instagram to our friends at dinner parties and I love watching reality TV but a lot of it is our fascination with what goes on behind people's doors and that we clearly don't know enough or are worried about our own when we're so obsessed with like oh my god look at that wealthy famous person in Beverly Hills she also has trouble like looking after her kids great great just you know, getting a wealthy home in Beverly Hills isn't uh, isn't, gonna take, isn't gonna take it away. Thank
2: God that's actually normal. But your house sounds a bit Beverly Hills because you rebuilt your bathroom around the bath. Oh but <laughs> if I had to answer this, I only this, no no I was only lo- only drawn to it because of the BAFTAs last night. Come yes, on. Thank you. Come on. There is a new I have book been asked
1: say about this nearly is every it single true? No, Michael um lovely Michael Colgan, who's a journalist with the uh, Guardian. We had a gorgeous re- and he's really funny and I love doing interviews with him because he's really funny. The journalists don't pick the byline. I joked, we were doing a Zoom and I was like, look, Michael, my BAFTA fits in my loo. I always wanted to be one of those people who had a loo in her bathroom and didn't kind of put it out front. How embarrassing to own your successes. And I was like, and I actually redid my bathroom recently <laughs> and the bathroom, it fits. On the show. And then, of course, the, the byline became, I rebuilt my bathroom around my BAFTA. So, but I get asked about that headline. It's a good headline. Every, because I've been doing lots of press rounds in Jack. Jack. <laughs> I'm is, like, oh, it, is it still
2: in the loo though? Oh yes, it is. Still it is in the loo, okay because
1: yes. I always, you know, it's good to know where people. Well, them. men I notice I'm- it more than women because women obviously sit down and it's just behind the toilet. And I, I do
2: kind of like ah. that. That, I've, and if they haven't noticed it, I know what they've been up to type of thing. Yeah, exactly. You really do. And and we let's not get away. You, mm-hmm. you won it for this way up you yes. created wrote and starred in I don't oh. want to not say all that um BAFTA for breaking very Talent much for my credits in 2020 because you know not everybody realizes who you know who's writing what and you were talking about who who's written what you've lately been in, um but I, I was really struck by Samantha Morton who I'm talking tomorrow to, to mm-hmm. on the tomorrow's program oh I love And Samantha the Martin. speech is very powerful she's mm-hmm. she's talked about dedicating her fellowship to those children in care that's that's yes. how she grew up but she also, I don't know if you, you were struck by this, if you've seen it, but she also talk, talked about her, some of her directing work mm-hmm. and that she believes in God. And she just sort of said it as a society, which is not yeah. something you usually hear in mm-hmm. award speeches and certainly British yeah, yeah. stars. It's a, it was a real I, I wonder sharing Because we have a, a, a,
1: like I'd be quite a spiritual person, but I grew up very Catholic, but I wouldn't call myself religious or it's not a belief in God. It's a belief in like, I love that we're doing this here and not on Zoom because we have eye contact and connection and it's real and I can feel how this is going or went and whatever that is, I believe in. Mm. And that during the pandemic, especially, we lost all of our intense core spirituality with each other, whatever that is. And it's probably, a scientist can come in and tell you, that is dopamine, serotonin and whatever else. But I think sometimes we definitely judge people who we deem very clever to be... um, to be silly to believe in something that you can't see. But then when you fall in love with someone, you can't see the love or you can't see all the rest of it. And I think growing up religious and knowing like, oh God, like I fought against uh, the you know, um, uh, the awful abortion laws in Ireland and so much of that was rooted in religion and so much Catholic guilt and everything comes with it. But I've also been, I also have like a nun in my family and I've seen the beautiful work her and a lot of her female colleagues do and I've seen the best and the worst parts of it growing up intensely in quite a monoreligic um religic monoreligic new word added to the dictionary I'm sure Oxford people listen um uh the best and the worst of both sides and it's given me a lot more of a like maybe uh and living in a country that doesn't have a religion around it, other than maybe the royal family, is the kind of closest thing for religion. Yeah, yeah, or the BBC. Yeah, um, and it does make me a lot softer and more understanding. And thinking, God, there's been times in my life where I've not known where to go, and mentally and I have hoped to god that the god is there <laughs> and that's not from a belief in god that is literally a wringing my uh, hands to the air or the sky mm. going oh I hope something's bigger than this and if if that's the only thing like crystals or whatever that gets you through the moment fine you know fi- like fine it's when it becomes a business and a doctrine and rules and... And linked politics. And linked to politics and, as, and linked to, as, as people and linked to judging people's lives, sexuality, all the rest of it, that you're like, no, that's not that's not that stuff but if, if if people have like a little lucky pair of socks that gets them through the football match or whatever you're like
2: absolutely go for it you grew up surrounded by women didn't you yes yes a total matriarch. So,
1: total matriarch total be, to matriarch be, so I didn't actually know I was one <laughs> because it was an all female environment it was just my mother my sister and me we lived in the middle of nowhere my mother has seven sisters um, and a very uh, like a, like a bullshy great granny. I went to an all girls school until I was eighteen. We only had um, female teachers. I think there was one put upon. Uh, there was one put upon male vice principal in the secondary school at one point, and he was always like one. Just trying my best. I'm just trying my best. I got love when he was really kind. Um, but like so, t- I didn't know that wasn't how the world was. And it was such a shock to get to university and to kind of be speaking and like expect to be quiet or anything like that. I was like, I don't think so. Um, So, yeah, it it definitely, going back, I wouldn't have changed it. I do love what it gave me. Um, And I I do have a real intense love of women and the mess of us and all the different types. And I suppose for me, when I see stories on screen, like trying to loop it back to my show or even this, and they don't sound like the the wealth of people I know. I get so intensely angry and frustrated by it when I see kind of like the same two or three characters crop up as if they're not all of the people I grew up and knew with all of their idiocies and brilliance and all the rest of it. I'm like, well, who, wh- what, how did you manage to pick the same three people over and over again for these rom-coms or sitcoms or dramas? where it's, you know, sort of the non, the sexy one or or the sort of like, whoopsie. I just, we're all of those people all the time. And so... Um, and if you that. actually
2: write how women talk and how a lot yeah. of women talk to each other, it's yeah. complicated and very yes. different. It goes yes. deep yeah. and silly. You know, yeah. all of that range, yeah. which you, you,
1: you look at, don't you? And, go, and going forward, I've been I've been very lucky that, like, I found myself, when I work on scripts where there's, or uh, I'm playing a character and there's no room uh, for making it nuanced. I get very frustrated and when I'm allowed, like even on Alice and Jack, Victor really let me make the character my own. So it wasn't like the kind of Jolene-esque character, kind of the kind of like, oh, the man's left me. Like I wanted her to make her be someone we all know or are. So when you see her on screen, you're like, oh God, that could have been me if I'd met the person who loved someone else and that it feels like a a whole person with a whole backstory. And I, I love any actor or writer or... Um, who shows characters and and I have a lot lot of my writing friends have this as well where you know when you see a side character like oh god I'd love to see their spin-off show that means a writer's done a brilliant job and given an actor a good day at work because I always feel really guilty if you bring an actor on for two lines I hope they're a good two lines that they feel they're getting to do their art you know what I mean and I've I've been the person coming on for two lines and you're like I think this person had a lot of trauma and they're like (laughs) no they're just putting the tea down on the table and then walking away saying thank you and you're like, yeah. I would have loved to have seen you do that role with the trauma and the tea. And the nervous shaking thing going, here's your tea, don't ask me about it and then walking away. But I I love saying, and I think that's why, you know, it's important, or even like when Samantha's talking about children in care, like we have a very mono look at what those people look like, what their futures are like and it's normally always quite downtrodden and sad and there's a wealth of all of those people
2: well, I hope we she's. To get um, to see. I hope she's got a bathroom that's as good as yours, and uh, you've got your name of your podcast there, Trauma and Tea. Oh yes, so we've dealt oh my with gosh, a few things this B, the uh, the latest program, Alice and Jack, as we started and slightly ended by talking, is just started on Channel Four. It's a joy to have you on the program. Thank you so
1: much. Oh, what, thank you what very I... much
2: for coming on this morning. Uh, And you heard, you know, Ashleen saying she's too young to be on TV. You're still getting in touch uh, to say what you've been viewed as too young for. Uh, Dear Emma, uh, when I was a qualified media accountant, says Sarah, uh, attending certain meetings with my boss aged 25 or 26, it was often assumed by clients I was his PA. Thankfully, Ugh. he was always conscious of this and always introduced me along with my credentials early on and often asked my opinion on technical matters during the meeting. I can imagine my experience would have been very different with a different manager. And so they go on. Keep your messages coming in. The reason I've asked you that, though, is because in April, the former Applied Cymru advisor, Carmen Smith, will become the youngest peer in the House of Lords aged 27 uh, Baroness Smith of Lanfeast, as she will be known, is replacing Lord Dafford Wigley when he retires aged 80 as the Welsh Nationalist Party's only peer. Lord Wigley is Plaid Cymru's former leader, formerly an MP, also for nearly 30 years. Uh, Plaid Cymru, I should say, is unusual amongst the political parties in holding internal elections to select its nominees for the House of Lords. And one of the reasons uh, Carmen's nomination was also deemed controversial by some is because she was actually the runner up. She got the nomination as the highest polling woman, but as agreed by Plaid's national executive to improve female political representation, despite a man getting more votes than her. It's her. Uh, but this is also, just remember, a political party that doesn't even believe in the House of Lords. Uh, Carmen Smith joins me now from the BBC studios in Cardiff. Good morning. Good morning, Emma. Uh, a, f- a funny old turn here. Plaid Cymru, a party you-, you joined as a teenager wanting to abolish the House of Lords. I also believe you're, you're a Republican and, and this is a, perhaps a strange role
6: yes um I, I think that some people um might be surprised um that you know we take take seats um in the Lords, um but I think ultimately wherever um decisions about uh, well that impact people in Wales are made, um we must have voices there um i mean I, like as, like you said there i i don 't believe in um the lords as it as it exists in terms of being an unelected chamber. Um, however, where, you know, where, where decisions are made, we must have voices there and to change within. Um, Is that, do you think that's
2: part of your party accepting that Welsh independence isn't going to happen?
6: No, 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 certainly not. That's, that's, um, I, I mean, ultimately, I believe in my lifetime that we will have um, an independent Wales. Based, um, on, based
2: on what? I mean, looking back through the, the polling data, it's, it's definitely going the wrong way. And, um, you know, Plaid's been around since 1925
6: i think that um just speaking in terms of um from my um, own generation there's more and more support um for um independence um for the younger generation and so i think in the future um, we'll have um, more more support for it um however you know in terms of um, as things currently stand uh, um, in Westminster, make a, a lot of decisions that impact people in Wales. So we must have, have people there that represent them.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the argument makes sense, mm-hmm. in the, it, but not in the context of a uh, party, I suppose, that, that doesn't want there. But but moving from that, you've mm-hmm. explained if people were confused, the, the rationale that the party's fashioned. You, you've also obviously signed up <laughs> to it. You're going in um, as you expect to. And there's also, as I mentioned, and that's an issue very important to Women's Hour, uh, there's a desire by the party, not least, I'm sure, in light of some of the reports around the toxic culture of it, which perhaps we'll come to, uh, a desire to improve female representation. What is your response to those who feel perhaps uncomfortable about uh, the way that your nomination was come to?
6: I think just in terms of, um, you know, how the, how the process um, ran, um, it's not... Um, unknown for us as a party and also um, other um, elections in Wales to have such a process in place where um, you ensure um, that women are elected into into positions. Um, we have um, ran um, similar um, pr- processes for like Sennav elections in the past in um, like 99, 2003 um, where the first person on each of the regional lists um, was reserved for women. Um, and so it's not it's not a new um, process. Um, and, you know, just as a, a party of equality, it's, it's quite important to us. But then specifically, you know, for this election, um, I mean, just look at the look at the House of Lords. It's 70 um, percent men um, and um, the average age is 71 um, well, so- though, yes, in,
2: in fact, you know, the, the the gentleman you were up against, mm-hmm. Elfin who who's 72, uh, previously the leader of Plaid in Westminster, uh, came first in that. So y- your, your viewpoint would be, we need more women and it, and it doesn't matter about experience or democracy in that sense
6: no certainly not and i I hope um that alvin um can join join me actually in the in the lords um we've made representations to have more seats and it's a it's a list that we've elected so to speak Um, so more
2: people from a party who doesn't believe in the house of lords okay is it difficult a difficult one to square i imagine
6: no, I, well, I, I honestly um, don't don't feel it is to be honest. In terms of, like, like I said, um, you know, if if you're going to make decisions that impact people, um, you know, you need people there that um, are going to be impacted ultimately. Um, and until um the institution doesn 't exist, um you know we have to have voices there, and a lot of issues within um society in terms of um, a lot of issues and struggles that people are going through mm. are because of our broken political systems and well, until on, that, we... on
2: that many will agree with you and 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 i don 't want to mm-hmm. not get to what what you want to do there it 's just trying to tease out for people who aren 't familiar with how the Lords works and also perhaps how Plaid Cymru mm-hmm. comes to it. I think it's important to, to make sure we, we go through that and why there has been certain reactions. And there's also been a reaction. and We've been getting some really interesting messages this morning from people who've been in not the same situation, but they've been viewed as too young, perhaps, to, to do their role. And that has had a response from people. And I, I wonder what, what that's been like, first of all. What sort of things have uh, come to you and, and how have you found that experience?
6: I think that um ultimately I was expecting it um in terms of just some of the um w- the views um shared, and um I completely accept people's um ver- you know different types of views that they'd have um uh- in terms of my appointment however i think when it comes to age and gender it is a a, a difficult one um, to square and i'm sure many of your listeners will understand um what that kind of feels like um, as well um however t- it, it kind of in effect uh, motivates me more in terms of um hopefully um by me going in, into this role um that hopefully i can bring other um uh, well women or people from other backgrounds into um it w- with me so to speak and hopefully that they will go for um different positions in their communities um in the future or, and get involved in campaigns that matter to them and um cuz I, I completely you know it it is tough don't don't get me wrong at all um and as as many of your listen listeners might have written in 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 regards to um their own experiences of um uh, being judged in terms of their their age. Mm. Um, however, if um, if we don't um, put people forward with different, who look differently, who um, but also more representative of our society, then how are we going to make that change? Really. Well,
2: and there's a great deal of concern in politics. It's it's given sometimes a, a bit of a, a title like intergenerational unfairness, but there mm. is a great deal of concern about. Uh, whether younger people are fairly and, and better re- could be better represented is what does that look like from your perspective? About what you're going to try and bring to the table?
6: Yeah, so well, ultimately, I'll be going there to to do a, a job of work, um, and um, there's a few different um, areas that you know I'd, I'd like to like to focus on. But I think through doing that work, um, I I would hope kind of bring a different perspective in terms of just my own um, lived experiences. Um so I was a um well I, I grew up in um North Wales, um in a place called Annismourne um where I was a, a young carer and um i'm sure that um some of your listeners as well uh, might have um experienced some like caring responsibilities mm. and how difficult it can be to, to you know like balance um different um parts of your life really um but in terms of how that shapes you as a as a person in terms of how you might see things di- you know differently and also understand how perhaps you know life can be diff- difficult for different types of people as well and how that should be considered in you know wider um, like policy changes and things that actually um, make a difference to people's day to day lives. So uh, uh,
2: we should say a young carer mm-hmm. for your father. is that, Yes, is that right? yeah, yes. my late father. Your late father. Mm-hmm. Um, and from from that perspective, are you are you hoping to make that one of your your issues, how how carers or or particular in particular young carers' lives are affected in it's, the UK?
6: It's definitely um, an interest area of mine, and it's something that you know I, I'd love to to further support um, young carers and um other people who are carers um with the type of supports that support they get um because previously um I was uh, I used to work in um the national union students as yes. their deputy president and that was an area that I was you know very passionate about for those reasons and why I actually got um involved politically really um was to make things easier for Young people going into um, university in terms of how their means tested, in terms of the financial support, and and that um, the means testing was was removed for student carers in in Wales um, after that campaign. And there, I mean, there's loads of there's a whole of areas um, that you know could um, that there's more support needed for carers. But some of the things that I'd like to focus on in the Lords are. Um, so, in terms of well with Welsh communities, um a lot of Welsh communities have been scarred by the industrial past, and um so something that i'd uh, really like to work on is in terms of looking at how Westminster can pay for coal tip safety um, and at the moment it's not something that Westminster um sees that they're responsible for. Um, but in terms of that, you know, would make a difference in terms of um, how those communities are um, respected, um, but also supported um, in the future. And then a few other things um, that, you know, are important to me is, while well, Ply Cymru, we've um, uh, really been strong in terms of... Um, uh, been against the um, Rwanda bill on the, the basis of it being immoral um, and that is currently being discussed in the Lords. It is, Yeah, um, I mean so that, that sort
2: of scrutiny uh, yeah. I, I, and there'll be of, of course those those issues come to as a, as a hmm. party. It was just interesting to hear your personal uh, potential you know top of the list that you've been thinking about. I, I mm-hmm. did mention the culture of your political party. I mean last May, the leader, Adam Price, and then leader, resigned after a damning review, which uh, said that Plaid Cymru needs to detoxify a culture of harassment, bullying and misogyny, and that too many instances of bad behaviour was tolerated and discrimination was gender-based. As a 27-year-old woman in Plaid Cymru, what is it like for you?
6: I think that... um, well in terms of politics uh you know in general um it is really difficult um for young women i mean you can you can just see in terms of how um often the media treat um you know men and women politicians
2: quite differently but th- in sorry, terms this, of how they're scrutinised. That, that, that is a point and we, mm-hmm. one we've done a lot, but I, I asked quite a specific question about your party um, and that's not about how the media's treated anybody. It's about what's gone on within the party that you are now going to take a seat for in the House of Lords. Are you, pr- are you proud to do that after such reports?
6: I, I, I am proud um, to to represent um Playa Cymru, um, And um, but I, I, I do I do agree um that um I mean the, the report on Project Power is, a you know a list of recommendations that ultimately must um, be implemented. Um and as a as a young woman, you know, I, I have had those experiences um in you know um in the in the party um, and it has it has been um, difficult but I, I do believe in the fact that you know the party's And kind of made a brave step um, in terms of, you know, outlining how um, they can improve, and also kind of you know publicly stating that, yeah, this isn't this isn't okay, um, and we must do something about it. And I think a lot of other organisations are going through um, a similar
2: thing. There are many. We 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 do a lot of them most days Mm -hmm. uh, here on this program. It's just good to hear your perspective uh, as a a young woman within that party, a younger woman, I should say. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next time I talk to you, you'll be a baroness. So uh, that'll be a a new title for me to introduce you. But for now, I think I I just call you if I can, Carmen Smith. Um, Thank you very much for talking to us this morning, giving us a window into your new job, uh, the former Plaid Cymru advisor there, uh, about to become the youngest peer in the House of Lords, aged 27. Thank you very much indeed, hearing a bit about some of her priorities, but also those tensions for that political party taking a place in the House of Lords uh, and a part of the political system it does not agree with. Uh, a message here, Lucy in Dorset, good morning to you, and I started my teaching career as a head of drama department on my very first day. I was shouted at for being in the corridor at break time. Maybe more because of how long, young I looked, perhaps, but still deserving of a smug answer back. Your message is about what you were deemed too young for. Very powerful one here. I've been told I'm too young to have had a stroke at 31. There's a lot of expectation around age and disability, and it's something that is rarely talked about. It's a very good point indeed. And uh, another one from Marjorie says, Dear Emma, I was 14. My mother considered me too young to attend my father's funeral, despite the fact I'd coped with his sudden death in a road accident. I never forgave her and other messages about your experiences of being deemed too young or viewed uh, different to your age. Do keep them coming in? But I did promise some words to live by, uh, and here are some perhaps you may wish to live by. To live a good life, we have the potential for it if we learn to be indifferent to what makes no difference. Marcus Aurelius, Roman emperor, warrior and philosopher, made that statement. He's known for his thinking and writing on Stoicism. It's a school of philosophy that dates back to ancient Greece. It's aim to maximise our happiness by focusing on the things in life we can control and having the confidence to make ourselves a priority. The theory is experiencing a resurgence. There's books, of course, then there'll be podcasts. You know how it goes. And the Australian journalist and political speechwriter, Bridget Delaney, who has made a name for herself in the pursuit of wellness, is on board with stoicism uh, and uh, also inspired her work. Her writing inspired that Netflix series, which you may have seen Well Mania. Uh, Bridget joins me live from Sydney in Australia and in the studio I'm joined by Professor of Classics and Ancient History at Durham University edith hall who i'll come to shortly but bridget good morning good morning emma how are you it's safe to say i'm all right and and how are you is a key question you've tried to answer with some of your wellness journeys you really went for it (laughs) didn't you with long fasts chinese medicine all of that
0: i did um i started writing about wellness way before it became um expensive and goopified um and then i watched the explosion of you know retreats um Various uh, types of meditation, different diets, and I wrote a book called Well Mania, which became um, a Netflix show with Celeste Barber. W- was some... so that doesn't mean I'm well? No, I no just,
2: well, it just. I was going. I was going to say, what does that mean? What, what were you looking for? What What was going on in your life?
0: Um, I was looking for. Initially, I was going to a lot of um, monastic retreats, so I was interested in ancient traditions of. of disappearing from society and taking stock. And if you're not religious, that as- that aspect of society has disappeared. And so I was interested in what would happen if you tried to integrate, slowing down, going on retreat, going inwards, what would that look like? And um, it was kind of surprising slash not very surprising to see that the market came in very strongly when life became very hectic for a lot of people. People were getting burnt out and then retreats became this commodified thing
2: and stoicism how how have you come to that and what is it for you um
0: well i came to that just as a a weekly column in the guardian and you know sometimes sometimes you run out of ideas and a friend sent me a press release from exeter university um saying they're doing stoic week and would i write about it i think the week before i'd written about taping my mouth shut while i was trying to sleep so another wellness thing and i found this um i found stoic week quite challenging I wrote a very flippant column on it and then was contacted by Stoics saying, look, you really should take this a bit more seriously. It's very helpful. And so the next year I went back and did it again just in, in my own time um, with some friends and found it extremely useful. And that was before the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of stuff around control. And in Australia, um, you know, the borders were shut. There, there were quite severe lockdowns for you know, up to two years, and so stoicism was extremely helpful to me then. And and what does that mean? Could you give an example? Yeah, sure. So um, the basic kind of fundamental principle of stoicism is you can only control a few things in life. Um, They are your own character, your actions and reactions, and how you treat other people, and everything else is pretty much out of your control, or at least your full control. So if you run everything um through that test, say, for example, um, I have to catch a flight to London to have the interview um, and I miss the flight because of weather, um, well, that's frustrating, but the weather is out of my control. So instead of being stressed and anxious, I just go, okay, it's not within my control. I tried my best. I tried other ways of getting there, but... You know, I couldn't do anything about it. So it relieves the burden of of, um, a lot of stresses.
2: Is that how you would come to it, Edith? Let me bring you in at this point. Is that, that, I mean, you know, Bridget's not saying every element of Stoicism, but given a a take of
3: how it's helped her. That particular thing, which is that you um, think very hard about what you can control and what is down to luck or fortune is common to all five ancient uh, self-help schools of philosophy. There are five. Uh, that that particular thing. The trouble is, though, she mentioned the commodification of retreats. So Stoicism, new Stoicism, including the stuff coming out of Exeter, which managed to get the university in premature, is a huge industry. There's a lot of money involved in a thing called Stoicon, which is an annual conference. The Stoicism that they peddle is not anything that I, who've read every single word in Latin and Greek, of the ancient Stoics recognise that.
2: No one from StoicCon is here to reply. No, that, they're I'll not. I'll just
5: say
3: at this point, but you're, you're, you've got
2: a concern about the exact same thing with retreats uh, now happening it with is some But
5: it's
3: also traducing the ancient school of Stoicism, which was a deeply masculine one. It's one that is beloved of the Roman ruling class, the slaveholding, oppressive patriarchal men who ran the empire. I don't think you want to look too closely at Marcus Aurelius's personal life, thank you very much, or his imperial policies. And all four of the five schools are all based on something which is fundamentally flawed for the 21st century, which is soul-body division. So that is that your mind must control and repress your passions, instincts and emotions. It's fiercely incompatible with any kind of Freudian model of humans as an animal who've got passions and emotions and that they're actually healthy and need some kind of outlet. It's all about repression. This is why Stoicism was so easily adopted by early Christianity. The only school of thought in antiquity that started with the premise that actually our passions and emotions, because we're animals, are good, was Aristotelianism. And and that for you is um, I know it's hard to summarise, but I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to. What what does that mean? That means that we're always going for the middle way. So you say anger is not. We must suppress anger, which is Stoicism. They say anger is a form of madness. Aristotelianism says that it's on a a line between no anger, which makes you a useless moral agent, if you don't get angry when your kid is bullied in the place, to excessive anger in the wrong place at the wrong time. We need to get the right amount of anger to get us into the head teacher's office to defend our child. The same with sex. Sex is good. This is why, you know, eating is good. Aristotelian is the only one that is friendly to women because all the other systems saw women as just sort of animal and base, men as mind, women as body, lactation, child-rearing. That is why I've written my own self-help book on Aristotelianism. Now I haven't made a lot of money out of it. But I do get a lot of people, because as a woman who's brought up three children, I'm 64. I have been practicing this for, for 40 years. And, and,
2: and let me, can I, can I bring in Bridget back at yes. this point? Because, you know, what would you say to that? That yes, there's certain issues there, which is about the people and, and in particular the man who came up with a lot of this and his personal life, but there's other issues around perhaps it's not being the healthiest way to live in the world and it being linked to repression. What do you say to that?
0: Um, it's absolutely linked to repression um, more than 2000 years ago when slavery was very common Um in my book, I, I do challenge a lot of the things like desire, you know, re- and repression. So I don't see it as a perfect um, philosophy, but I I have found it very helpful. Um, and um, I look forward to reading your other guest's book because that sounds amazing <laughs> as well. Um, but look, I, I'll just read a quote from Seneca. Um, Seneca said, Men who have made these discoveries before us are not our masters, but our guides. Truth lies open for all it has not yet been monopolized and there is plenty of it left even for prosperity to discover. So I kind of took that as being life changes. There's big discoveries in neuroscience, in psychology, um, in, you know, the way we evolve. And we're not meant to be literal with how the Stoics lived thousands of years ago. We take some of the, like the virtues, for example, courage, justice, wisdom, temperance, all really great things that aren't gendered, you know, men and women have capacity for all of those. And then you don't, um, have, you don't right. have
2: to take all of them. I'm sorry to cut across you. I'm nearly out of time. Um, but
3: Edith, I feel you wanted to say something very briefly, if you can. I, I, I absolutely think parts of stoicism are fine, but it was actually uh, posterior to Plato and Aristotle. It's invented a century later. I would go back to the true source um, in, in democratic Athens. There you go. I, I, I think if you can end a programme with those, those
2: words ringing in your ears from both, both sides, that, you, you're in a good place. Uh, Bridget Delaney, Edith Hall, thank you very much for that. Thank you for your company today uh, on tomorrow's programme. As I mentioned at the start, we'll be, I'll, I'll be talking to Samantha Morton. So join me then for that and stay with Radio 4. Thank you. That's all for today's Woman's Hour. Thank you so much for your time. Join us again for the next one. Hi, I'm Mariana Spring, the BBC's disinformation and social media correspondent, and I've learned firsthand that the online world can be a breeding ground for hate. But why do some people behave the way they do on social media? For BBC Radio 4, I'm meeting the people at the heart of some extraordinary online conflicts to see if understanding, even forgiveness, is ever possible. Listen to Why Do You Hate Me on BBC Sounds.